there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Okay, so... Uh, we have a couple of things that uh, I wanted to kind of go over briefly, and uh, today's call, I, I'd like to get your input as to how best to do this. I've got a, so many questions that have come in at the Ask Dr. Buttar site, probably close to 400 questions. The problem is many of those questions, I've answered them already. They're already already on video, or they are um, things that are lectures that have been included in the Facts and Toxicity series or the, in other words they've already been done the, the information is already out there and I hate making a video or doing a answering a question that's already been answered and I would much rather direct people to those questions uh, to the videos on those questions so um, let me so one of the things that we decided just recently is I'm going to probably have one of the other providers on with me and we'll go through a question that was brought up that we think was pertinent to most people and also that has not been answered previously so that we can kind of cover new material. Um, the IADFW format we're going to keep the same way. So without any further ado, let me ask you guys is there a specific question that you have? And don't worry about if it's already been answered because then what I can do is I can direct you to where that video may be or where that information may be so that you don't have to uh, worry about me answering or you being embarrassed over a second, I don't wanna ask a question that's already been answered type of thing. It's, it's informational and uh, beneficial to everyone if they know that there's a certain question that's been asked where the resource has already been placed in a, in a manner that you can access at any time. Now, for the IADFW members, there's a lot of videos that have actually been done for you guys. I don't know if those have been loaded up that we're behind schedule a little bit on getting some of these things uploaded, but there's probably close to 35 videos that range from five to 15 minutes on topics that we've covered in the past, and, and they really came out good. So if, uh, if anybody has any type of a question that you think would be relevant, and again, don't worry about whether I've answered it or not before, because I'll just tell you where it is if if I remember. Otherwise, I'll try to do uh, try to do a repeat performance and give you guys the answer. So, does anybody have any type of a specific question? You know, last week we started talking about stem cells, and it was funny because I was talking about using stem cells for regenerative purposes in adults, and we had more questions coming in about children, and that was a question that was asked so many times. And again, in my clinic. In any of our clinics, if the child has autism, they will never get stem cells until and after appropriate heavy metal removal. Because just remember, the body is like a house, and if the house is burning, as in oxidative stress from heavy metals or persistent organic pollutants or anything else like that, you are going to have to first put out the fire before you try to rebuild the house. If you do try to rebuild the house before you put the fire out, 
You are wasting your time. You're wasting your money. You're wasting your effort. And anybody who tells you to do so, they just don't either, one, understand or, two, care about the outcome. So if you have a child with autism and you haven't been under our care for at least a year and a half to two years and we have not been able to yet show that the heavy metals have actually peaked and not started coming down, don't even ask about it because it's not going to happen. Okay, it's, it's, You can go anywhere else you want to go get them. I had a patient once about, about six, seven years ago tell me that if I didn't do the treatment that they wanted, they were going to go somewhere else. That's the last time I saw them. Okay, And they've tried to come back into the office now because there's a, there's a time and a place to do certain things. And we are, you know, we are, one of our slogans is, this isn't Burger King. We don't do it your way. We do it the right way. Now, sometimes people may understand the right way, but sometimes people just, they're so adamant because they've seen a new butterfly in a squirrel. It's one of those type of things they want to go after that type of treatment. We do the things in the manner and in the order in which it's appropriately indicated. I don't care if it's the standard of care or not the standard of care. I only do it based upon the response physiologically that I'm looking to achieve for the patient to ultimately give them the result that they're seeking. So that's what our, our entire standard in our clinic is. It's always exceeding, you know, I've, I've never done anything standard in my life, so I've, it's always exceeding what is expected, but many times it's going against what the popular thought process may be. So my tutor is the body, how the body works, physiology. If you can understand it physiologically and then you can apply whatever therapy, treatment, protocol, whatever it is, physiologically, you will have a much greater chance at being successful and achieving the final outcome that's desired. Okay, so let me start answering some of these questions. So Debbie says, what to, what to do if red blood cell counts are slightly elevated and iron is low? Do you supply, do you supplement iron? I also have a history of cancer healed naturally. Okay, so Debbie, one of the things that it's important to remember that I can't give you medical advice over Facebook, okay? And I won't do that. Uh, for the IADFW members, it's a little bit different since it's a private group and they've gone through certain um, agreements and such, but I can't answer that question directly. But I can tell you, generally speaking, um, when an individual has blood counts that are elevated, and I think this was a question that was asked a few weeks ago, um, when, when you have a blood count that's elevated, the first question is, you know, what specifically in the blood count is elevated? So when you say, you know, red blood counts, I assume you're talking about the red blood cells, but there's different components to it. So basically, there's a, there's a number called the hemoglobin and there's a number called the hematocrit. And basically, the hematocrit is about roughly, you can calculate it's three times what your, what your uh, hemoglobin levels are. And there's a normal reference range, okay? Now, what happens is when you're looking at that normal reference range of any type of uh, blood analysis or serum analysis, it's based upon what they call the median value. So you have, you, you take, depending on which type of lab it is and what, what the criteria is, it's either 400 or 800 samples. They take 400 or 800 samples, and then they take that number and they see what's the middle point, okay? So whatever the middle point is, they'd say that's the middle point, and then they take two standard deviations to, the, to either side, and it's, it's what's called a, a bell curve, okay? So basically... Uh, if I remember correctly, it's like 85% of the range from that median will be defined within two standard deviations from the median point. So whatever it is, you know, you take a bunch of different samples and you get 
500, 1,000, 2,000 samples. They'll basically take, depending on the lab, again, it's either 400 or 800 samples, and they take the median, and then they calculate two standard deviations, plus and minus, and that's the 85%. That's going to encompass 85% of the total range. Anything above or beyond, below that, above on one side or below on the other side, that's considered an abnormal value. So everything that's within 85% is considered to be normal. Now, that's the first problem with normal, what, what they, when, they quote, when they call it normal, right? So I'll give you a perfect example when it comes to iron. When they look at iron levels in humans, they take that same criteria, 800, I believe, is what they use there, and they take two standard deviations, and they say everything within this parameter is normal, within this range. The problem is that we as a society have very high levels of iron when we're, when we're uh, being evaluated. So basically, if your entire population is skewed to one side, and you take that standard deviation plus or minus two standard deviations plus or minus the median, you're going to have what you call normal, but it's outside of the range of normal because your entire population is skewed to one end. So what's being considered normal is not really normal, it's normal in that population. So you have to be very careful with things like that, and unfortunately modern medicine doesn't take that into account. They just say, well, 85% of the people are gonna fall into normal. Well, the, the amount of iron that is found in us, like serum iron level, I want it to be on the lower end of normal. The reason is, is because iron, like all other metals, in too high of a level can be oxidative, can be heavy metal-like, right? It's, uh, heavy metals cause oxidative damage. So copper is an essential mineral. Selenium is an essential mineral. Um, iron is an essential mineral. There's many of these manganese and, you know, there's all these molybdenum, all these trace elements, chromium, these are all essential. But if copper is in too high of a level or selenium is in too high of a level or iron is in too high of a level, it's going to be actually acting like a toxic, heavy metal and cause oxidative stress damage, and it can be very detrimental. In fact, CSI, the crime show uh, that you're probably familiar with, they actually had a couple different episodes. One they had uh, with mercury, another one they had uh, with selenium, where the mechanism of um, the murder, the way they committed the murder was by using these heavy metals. These, these actually, they, in one case they used selenium, in another case they used iron, but there was a, one case about mercury too, but that's you know, we know that's toxic, but it was taking elements like selenium and iron, which were noted to be beneficial and needed, but the person, the murderer, used them on a chronic level by dosing it in the person's tea and increasing the level of oxidative stress in the individual. So it was a slow, insidious type of death. So I think that the CSI episode with selenium, the guy was a cattle rancher, so she was taking the selenium supplement that they use for cattle, and she'd put a, a quarter of a teaspoon in his tea every day and make the tea for him. And in six months, he was dead, or four months, he was dead, or whatever it is. So again, very, very important to get the right levels, but too high level of these essential minerals can be toxic. So coming back to the population, to the skewed population, my goal, uh, when you look at the studies with iron, you want to have lower levels of iron. Now, of course, too low level of iron isn't good, but higher level within the normal range of iron is actually associated with a higher risk of, of colon cancer. So you want to, you know, iron isn't um, inert. It's not... It's not like, oh, you don't want to worry about it. It's, it's just, you know, it's not important. Too high level of iron can be very detrimental. So when you talk about the red blood cell count, you know, whatever that normal is, I have a question about that normal. There's many things that I'm looking for in my patients that I want them to be in the low end or I want them to be in the high end. But considering basically if it's in the normal range, reference range, that doesn't mean as much to me because I'm looking at it from understanding how physiology works. So let me give you a very specific example that may help you to understand this. 
we talk about cholesterol all the time and, and doctors look at the cholesterol levels. If they're above a certain level or triglyceride levels above a certain level, that's considered dangerous, right? And they want to put you in statin drugs, which are, don't want to get me started on that. We can talk about that maybe um, later on or, or on another, on another um, live stream. We can talk about the use of the, the importance of, of what cholesterol really means and, and how foolish it is to start on certain types of medications that cause all sorts of side effects. That's a different topic. But just to give you an example about this, um, let's say, let's just, just use cholesterol for example here, or uric acid levels. Let's use uric acid and cholesterol as examples, right? So when you look at the, your laboratory analysis, they have a limit. And if it's anything above that limit, what they call the normal reference range, if cholesterol is above that range, the doctor will uh, prescribe a statin drug, or uric acid levels, they'll prescribe another drug to try to, you know, because it's uh, associated with high levels of uric acid or associated with, um, with gout and some of these other types of things, and they'll put you in alpyrinol or another drug to help you with that. So these are things that they say, okay, if it's too high, it's abnormal. But here's a question that I want you to think about. What about the low levels? There's no low reference range. It's only high because the drugs that have been designed are to do with high. Well, here's the thing. If your cholesterol level is low, like too low, or your uric acid levels are too low, it is an impending, guaranteed, something is going on with your physiology that is, uh, that's a warning sign of a chronic disease, like a serious chronic disease. So whenever I see, whenever I'm looking at my chemistry levels for my patients, I'm scanning that. And if the cholesterol level is high, I don't really care. Uric acid, not a big deal. You know, they're not symptomatic. Even if they were symptomatic, then there's other things we do. But that's just telling me it's feedback, giving me information. I'm more concerned if I see those levels being low because in the, in the normal realm of medicine, low uric acid levels and low cholesterol levels mean nothing. And I'm telling you, they mean something very serious is, is getting, going on, that, that's getting ready to happen. So I have seen this six months before, three months before, you know, no more than a year, but anywhere from three months to a year, when I see those levels low, and this is over 28 years now of practicing medicine that I've noticed this, I've observed this, there's some type of chronic disease that the person ends up getting. So I'm more concerned about low cholesterol and low uric acid levels. If it's high, I'm not really too worried about it, okay, because there's, there's, that's an easy mechanism to fix because that's the body telling you something. Uh, cholesterol, for example, is the most important, one of the most important ingredients in our entire body. It's vital for cell membrane integrity. Without cholesterol, we would just be an organic you know, mass of just mush. We, we wouldn't have any integrity to our to our system, the cell membranes are um, are made up of of fats, of, of lipids, and the cholesterol molecule is very, very key for that. Cholesterol is a precursor of all the sex hormones, the progesterone, the estrogen, the testosterone. Cholesterol is is probably, as I said, one of the most important substances in our body. And dietary cholesterol, from what you eat, affects your serum cholesterol by less than I think it's like five to ten percent. And I believe, personally, that when a person has high cholesterol level, it's a body's cry. It's a compensatory mechanism of safety. Now, I've really gone off the topic that Debbie, you asked. But let me just come back to, let me just come back to the red blood cell count um, being slightly elevated. So if you take athletes, for example, people that are runners, people that are sprinters, and you do an uh, analysis of their red blood cells, you'll see that their hemoglobin and hematocrit levels are actually going to be slightly elevated. Why? Because they have more oxygen-carrying capacity because they're exercising their, their, their uh, hemoglobin levels, their iron levels. You know, they're just going to see more red, blood, more red blood cells. I don't know whether any of you have ever heard of blood doping before. 
But in uh, the Olympics, this is something where people will take their own blood, they'll pull the blood out, you know, they'll, they'll basically harvest their own blood. And um, that stimulates new red blood production. And then right before the competition, they'll go ahead and take an infusion of their own blood. And that basically is called blood doping because now you have more, ex uh, more oxygen carrying capacity of your blood because you've got more hemoglobin, more hematocrit, and so the body can theoretically perform better. So slightly elevated levels um, of blood counts doesn't mean anything. I, I would not be worried about it. And especially you don't need to have iron for that. Um, again, I have no more information than this. If you have uh, some type of an anemia where, where let's say you have a slightly elevated blood counts, but your, your red blood cells, are hemo they're, they're um, microcytic and hemochromic or something like that, then, then there may be other issues going on, but you need to talk to a doctor about that. So just, just saying slightly elevated blood counts, you know, what do you do about it? Nothing. It's just, you know, it's a frame of reference. So if you're, if you're an athlete, like, for example, blood, uh, I'm sorry, um, pulse rate, right? 60 to 100 is considered normal. But if you have somebody with a 50 heart rate or 45 heart rate, does that mean that that person you know, is, is got a problem. Well, some people freak out. Oh my God, he needs a pacemaker. He needs this. But look at the guy, look at the person. If they're a runner and they run five miles every day, guess what? His heart rate is going to be very efficient. So he does, his heart doesn't have to beat as much. Okay. Or somebody who's a, who's a diver, for example, you know, if they hold their breath for long periods of time and they're used to doing that, they're not, they, their heart rate isn't going to be up as, as high. Or you have somebody that, you know, if you take a normal person, 60 to hundred normal blood pulse, normal pulse rate, and then, you know, you've got your um, son that jumps out from behind the door and scares you and go, oh, my God, you know, jolts you. Well, not take your pulse. It's probably going to be 120 or 130. If a bear's chasing you, it's going to be 130. Does that mean, oh, my God, you tachycardic? And no, it's, again, the body compensating for the response. That's how the body's supposed to respond. In a period of stress, the heart rate's supposed to go up over 100. So that 60 to 100 is a normal reference rate for the normal people. But if you have a, a, a group of people that you're calling normal that are athletes, for example, that exercise on a regular basis, two hours every day, whatever, their heart rate's probably not going to be in that 60 to 100 range. It's going to be in the 50s or 40s. So the question isn't if it's slightly elevated. That's not the right question. The question is, is it normal morphological characteristics of the red blood and that of the red blood cells? And that would have to be done from a red blood smell smear. And also, you know, what your background is. And if you're an athlete or, you know, depending on what your history is, you know, if your parents have the same type of thing. So you can't just blanket it. You can't just blanketly um, look at a test and then say, okay, this is what it means. All right. So the last thing I'll say about testing is uh, let's tie this into heavy metals because that's where I've spent the majority of my professional career dealing with heavy metals. This is a very, very common problem with heavy metal analysis that even doctors just don't simply get it. And there are videos on the YouTube channel that kind of explain this. So when you have somebody that has a high metal level, people tend to freak out. Oh, my God, I have a heavy, high heavy metals. The first thing is heavy metals are in everybody. Certain people can clear them better than other people. The people that can clear them better, when you test them, you'll see higher levels of heavy metals. So you should not freak out. That's a good, that's a good thing because it means at least your body's getting rid of it. So I know I talked about this before where I said I was going to do a little diagram and show you guys this, and, and I haven't done this. Maybe we'll do a webinar and explain this. But I need to draw, um, when I do this live, you know, I usually have like a, uh, um, a whiteboard and I can draw it out. But basically you've got, you've got four categories and I'll just, this may be a little confusing, but I'll just try to explain it as briefly as I can. You've got four categories of people. You've got two categories, um, one healthy and one non-healthy. So think of healthy in this column and non-healthy in this column. And then draw it across the middle so you've got 
healthy with no symptoms, healthy with symptoms, having some kind of problem, not healthy, meaning the person has some kind of path. I'm sorry, excuse me, let me take that back. You have healthy and non-healthy. So healthy means they have no symptoms. Non-healthy means that they have some type of a complaint, some type of symptomology. And then you have draw the line in the middle, and then you've got people that have high metals that put out high metals, and you have people that have no metals showing up, okay? So you have, you have healthy, high metals, healthy, low metals. Then you have non-healthy with symptoms, having some type of medical problem with high metals, and then somebody with symptoms with low metals. And the question is, which person is the biggest concern for a doctor? And most people will say, for, for most doctors will say, obviously the person with symptoms with the heavy, high heavy metal levels. But the answer is incorrect. It's a person with symptoms who has low metal levels. Why low? Because they're not getting rid of it. These tests only show us what is coming out of the body. That's what's in the body. Okay. So when we do a urine test or fecal test or, or any type of test like that, we're seeing what's coming out of the body. When we do hair analysis, for example, we're seeing what's coming out of the, out of the body. Hair is a dead excrement, so we're measuring the amount of residual metals coming out of the body. If somebody, a, a perfect example is a study that was published in the uh, International Journal of Toxicology. Children with autism on hair analysis have very low levels of mercury. And children that are neurotypic, normally developing, healthy children, they have very high levels of mercury. But they found that the more severe the autism, the lower the mercury levels. And I actually had a doctor at a conference tell me that my whole theory with mercury and autism had nothing to do with it. That proved it, you know, clearly that it had nothing to do with mercury. So I'm sitting there going, wait a second, you know, and I asked the rest of the audience, I said, am I the only one who gets this? Or, uh, you know, did you guys hear this, what this doctor just said? I said, does anybody get it? And there was, it was silence in the room. And then a bunch of doctors started laughing and more people laughed. And, and I had to point out to this doctor, I said, listen, you, you, you just failed to understand this by your theory that mercury has nothing to do with it. And we see this level of mercury in autistic children being very, very low. And the more severe the autism, the lower the mercury level. And normal healthy children having high levels of mercury. And then you're saying, hey, your theory of mercury causing autism clearly is debunked just based upon your own observation in the study. You know, did, did you, are you saying then that because of children with autism have very low levels of mercury and children that are healthy have high levels of mercury that we should start giving mercury as a supplement to the children with autism? Is that what you're saying? Because he just didn't get it. The reason you see low levels of mercury in these children with autism is because they're non-excretors, all right? We've done a whole two-hour DVD on this, and if you're an IEDFW member, you don't have to buy it. You, can, you have access to it streaming, um, but this is actually part of my congressional testimony in 2004. Non-excretors are people that can't get rid of these metals, and so they retain in the body, and that's where the problem lies. So when you're looking at the healthy and non-healthy group, in the non-healthy group, if you're dumping metals, at least they're getting rid of metals on their own. It's the one that's got symptoms and not dumping metals that's the one you've got to be concerned about because they're non-excretors. That falls, the, the people that fall into that category are autistic children, Alzheimer's patients, cancer patients, autoimmune diseases. Those are all non-excretors. Okay, so Debbie, I hope I answered that question for you. Um, and it was a good question because it opened up a whole can of worms that I could answer. But anybody that wants to learn more about the heavy metal aspect and the non-excretor aspect, go to YouTube, look at the orange colored uh, I believe it's an orange-colored one, but it says education. Um, those uh, screens, they're all categorized by different colors, and, and just click on one of them, and you'll see in the upper left-hand corner, you know, what category that falls into. But I believe the heavy metal, non-excreter components is under education. It's an orange-colored uh, thumbnails. All right, so thank you for that question, Debbie. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everybody. Okay, so Zara, uh, I'm sorry, Zara. Zara said, what do you think about 
autonomic response testing for autism spectrum kids, sensitive kids, to desensitize them from allergies. Um, so, first of all, I'm not familiar with exactly what the ART component is. Now, I know what autonomic means, and I know what the response testing is. So, um, anything that helps with auto to re-regulate and balance the autonomic nervous system, because children with autism certainly do have an imbalance in their autonomic nervous system, and a lot of people do actually, with uh, based upon certain pathologies. Anything we can do to optimize the autonomic nervous system is is good. But you have to remember that trying to balance an autonomic nervous system, it's kind of like, you know, you're saying, well, what do we think about putting out the fire? How important is that when the house is burning? Well, it's very important. But you can put out the fire all you want, but if you didn't get rid of the source of what caused the fire in the first place, it's going to keep on reigniting. And in this particular case, with autism, for example, it's mercury. So you can do all the autonomic nervous t uh, response testing and balancing that you want to do. If you haven't addressed the heavy metal toxic load, it's going to just come back. So you have to under, uh, deal with the underlying offense if you want any lasting residual effect. Otherwise, you're just, it's an exercise in futility, okay? Um, it's, it's a waste of time and effort and money, and, and this doesn't do anything. So, so understand, basically, from a, from a global standpoint, that when you do something, it must deal with the underlying cause. I hear this all the time, people saying, oh, we're here to address the underlying causation, and then they give a supplement instead of a drug. They haven't dealt anything with the underlying causation, okay? It's, it's like the popular thing to say, but people just don't understand what that is. I never deal with the symptom. If your doctor is dealing with the symptom, whether he's doing it naturally or non-naturally, they're not looking at the causation, okay? It's symptom management. You give an herb or a vitamin or anything else, oh, they're doing great. No, they're not. They, if they're still using it to manage a the symptom, they've missed the boat. If you deal with the underlying symptom, uh, underlying causation, then the symptom should be your feedback because as it starts to change, it tells you, okay, I did the right thing. Or if it gets worse, no, I didn't do the right thing. So the symptom should never be touched because the symptom is your feedback, your answer to how to deal with the body. Okay? Hopefully, Zara, that appropriately answered your question. Uh, Anissa said, just watch the heavy metal toxicity, brilliant explanation of biochemistry, consulting you, Tom. Um, I don't know what that last part means, Anissa, but I'll just let it go, and you can explain to me if you want. Uh, Cheryl says, do you have any dietary recommendations for your patients? Uh, Cheryl, we have a lot of dietary recommendations for our patients, um, and, uh, you know, we talk about that in the IADFW section. I don't talk about that on the, on the normal channel because um, that's not what this is about. Um, but yes, you know, that, I've written a whole book on that in the ninth step to keep the doctor away, so we go through all those processes. Um, Debbie said, hemoglobin, hematocrit, and RBC, all three, yeah. So hemoglobin and hematocrit, uh, it, it's, it's the same measurement. It's measuring red blood cells, but hemoglobin and hematocrit, are looking, it's, it's basically you can calculate the hemoglobin, um, and the, you can calculate the hematocrit based on the hemoglobin. Uh, Amy says to Cheryl, read the nine-step book. Lots of good info. Thank you, Amy. Yes, exactly. Anissa, does DMPS also chelate aluminum? Anissa, that's a great question. Um, DMPS does chelate aluminum to a certain extent, but it's not the primary chelator uh, for aluminum. Uh, EDTA does a good job at binding to aluminum. DMPS does primarily the, the, the big ones, the big guns, um, 
that you would want to use DMPS for would be mercury, uh, arsenic, uranium, and plutonium. And then EDTA works, you know, well on tin and uh, aluminum and, of course, lead and, and iron and some of those other things. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm not sure, um, Marwa, what, what you're saying there, but I don't understand. I think it's in a different language. So, um, And unfortunately, I can't read the Arabic there, but uh, uh, maybe you could maybe you could explain what those words, Anas uh, Adelbari means. I'm not sure if that's a name or something. Okay, Heather says, do you have success with treating kids who have anaphylactic reactions, dairy, nuts, eggs? Absolutely, Heather. We have a whole regimen that we go through, and it's a it's a – you know, we got to be. We got to make sure it's done in a controlled environment. But yes, we have desensitized kids from chronic um, IgG-mediated delayed allergy reactions, as well as the IgE-mediated anaphylactic type reactions. But it's got to be done in a controlled situation, and it's not necessarily. Uh, it, it's an easy thing, but uh, I'm sorry, it's a simple thing, but it's not an easy thing. If that makes sense, it's a simple thing because it's it's you know, it's not a difficult component, but it's. It's simple, but it's not easy. It's not easy because it takes time, and, and it's got to be very controlled. So let's see. Debbie says, uh, thank you, for thank you, but can't elevated reds possibly be polycythemia vera? Well, elevated red blood cells can be many things, okay? I mean, you you could have a um, – you could have uh, – I mean, there's all sorts of things that it can be. Uh, it can be polycythemia vera. It can be – you know, leukemias can present that way. Uh, I'm not going to with red blood cells, but if the red blood cells are off, sometimes the white blood cells are off, and so you can start. So there's all sorts of things it can be, but again, you know, typically it's not something that you need to just just because it's slightly elevated. This is the reason that we have doctors. This is why, you know, again, I don't have your blood work, and I can't analyze it, and I wouldn't even if I did have it. This is why you need to go to a doctor and have it evaluated. Um, I'm just telling you the whole gamut. So there's an old saying, if you hear gallop, galloping, um, outside your house, you're not going to think of zebras. You're going to think of horses because you're in America. You're not in Africa. Now, in my situation, it's a little bit different because I used to have zebras. I had a whole herd of zebras. So if you hear galloping, then it could be the zebras, but we had horses as well. But my point is you're going to think of the most common thing. And typically speaking, slightly elevated red blood cells is not indicative of polycythemia vera. Um, again, you have to look at the patient population. But, yes, it's a whole host of things that, that, that could be. And, you know, where attention goes, energy flows. So if you're concerned about some type of disease process, then you shouldn't be talking to me on Facebook. You should go and have your doctor analyze the blood work. But um, if it's just a general question, and if, you know, if it's a general question about somebody's red blood cells being slightly elevated, again, I wouldn't worry about that because slightly elevated red blood cells is exactly that, slightly elevated. You're telling me two standard deviations is normal, but anything beyond that slightly elevated or slightly below is suddenly abnormal? It doesn't work that way. The body does not work that way, Okay. I mean, you could have a you could have um, um, elevated uh, hemoglobin hematocrit if you're dehydrated because your blood's more concentrated, so it's going to look like it's 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 higher concentration. So it can be as simple as that. So there's many aspects to it. Okay. Okay. Let's see. Uh, Michael said, "Love all of Dr. Bittar's talks." Thank you, Michael. Paula says. Uh, would you say that if you see it in your blood, you're getting out of the body? Um, actually, Paula, no, that's not necessarily the case. So certain things you will not see in the blood. For example, lead toxicity, if you see lead toxicity uh, in the within 30 days or 20 days, something like that, it's a very short time period. If you have acute lead toxicity, you'll see it in your blood. 
But after that, you won't see it in the blood. Even though that you've got that lead in you, you won't see it in the blood testing. So people get a false sense of security. And, and the reason is, is because the, with the heavy metals and with persistent organic pollutants, the body's goal is to try to get rid of this stuff. And if it can't get rid of it, what it does is it stores it in the deep recesses. So our lead, for example, gets stored inside a bone. So on autopsies of people that died 50 years ago, you know, when they um, remove the bodies out of the graves and then they do analysis on the bones, they will see lead levels sky high in these individuals in, stored in their bone. But they, you know, the cause of death was something else. Nobody knows what it was. So um, to exhume the body and then to check the levels of uh, heavy metals in the bone, for example, lead gets stored in bone. Certain metals get stored in certain other areas. But you won't see them in the blood levels. So blood is uh, usually indicative of acute toxicity. And then if you start effectively mobilizing it, you'll start seeing it in the blood too. So red, we do red blood cell analysis for heavy metals on children when we're um, measuring because as we're treating them, we'll start seeing glimpses of stuff in the blood. So baseline blood show, doesn't show anything. And then we'll start seeing glimpses of arsenic or mercury coming out in the blood. And the reason is, is because we're starting to mobilize it. We're starting to pull it out of the deep recesses and then we'll start seeing it. And that's why we're doing it. We're, we're capturing these uh, snapshots in that time frame so that we can see where the metals are coming out. That's why we do urine fecal hair and red blood cell analysis for heavy metals. Okay, time's moving pretty fast. We've already been online for 30 minutes, over 30 minutes. Um, didn't seem that fast. Okay. Let's see. Michael said, last week I had a plate implanted into my left clavicle. I broke it in three places three weeks ago, falling off an electric scooter. My question is this. The plate is made of titanium, so is titanium toxic to my body over time? I have read I can remove the plate in 12 months or so, but it would mean more surgery. Michael, that's a great question. So titanium is a very dense metal, okay? And you don't really have to worry about titanium because it's a non-reactive inert type metal. Um, it's not as... Um, most of, the, most of the things that are used for surgical plates, for prosthesis, um, for the hardware, when, they, when orthopods do their surgeries, when orthopedic surgeons um, do procedures, like the uh, screws that they use or the bolts that they use for bones, it's like most of those things are very inert. So they're made, usually made out of titanium, and you don't have to worry about that. Um, to have it removed from the body, if you, you know, I personally um, would... Just, you know, I personally wouldn't bother getting it removed, but if you're concerned about it, certainly do get it removed, but wait, you know, at least at 12 months that they're talking about. But really, you don't have to worry about titanium. People get their hips replaced and, you know, knees replaced and different things replaced, and, and you don't really have to worry about those metals. Now, don't get, don't mistake uh, titanium for thallium. Now, if you do thallium, like when they do the cardiac stress test and they use thallium, that's not a metal that should be in the body. That should not be used. Um, so many of the contrast materials that they use, uh, gadolinium or, or thallium, those are things that you don't want to put in your body. But titanium prosthesis, not a big deal, nothing to worry about, very inert, um, low reactive. It's not giving off, you know, it's not, it's not causing oxidative stress. Um, very, very stable, so you don't have to worry. It's kind of like gold, okay? Gold is also the same thing. You don't have to worry about gold in your teeth. Uh, very, very inert. Okay, Carolyn said, what do you recommend for the dietary, for the elderly in terms of trying to detox? What can they handle? Well, Caroline, any, they can handle the same thing. We may have to go a little bit slower depending on if they have any type of compromise. But, no, it's, it's, it's not anything different. Like if somebody has 
kidney function, for example, that you know, elevated BU and creatinine. I was just talking to one of my nurse practitioners about that. Uh, you know, we still do the detox. We'll go a little bit slower, but we'll actually see the bump in the kidney function as it goes up, and then we actually see the kidney functions get better. And that, that's another topic. In fact, if somebody talks to me about it, it's going to take me more time um, to talk about kidney function and, and how that works. And if anybody has anything about osteopenia or osteoporosis, um, that, that, that's a great topic to talk about in calcium metabolism and how EDT, ethylene, dimethyltryptamine acid, uh, IVs actually increase bone mass density, and studies have shown that uh, within one year, about 30 to 35% increase in bone mass density. And it's all based upon um, how we're using the, uh, the chelators. But uh, if you're talking about you know, just general detox, you know, whether it's heavy metals with IVs or you're talking about gut detox or liver detox, uh, elderly, it's the same thing. I mean, it's not, it's not going to affect anything. We may have to just go a little bit slower, like I said, but um, that's only if they have some, some type of a reason to do that. Otherwise, you know, it's the same. It's all titrated protocol. So, you know, you, you could have a 40-year-old and an 80-year-old that are going through the same protocol, but they're just adjusting based upon their own titration. And, and the 40-year-old may be more sensitive to the liver detox and we have to slow down and back off, and the 80-year has no problem going through it. So it just, it, you know, it's not so much based on age. It's based upon level of organ functioning. And that's what the head map does is it evaluates the functioning of your individual organ systems. Okay, so I'm going to actually try to answer just a couple more here, and then I'm going to change over to, um, to Instagram and try to answer some of their questions. So Amy says, don't want to ruin the great book, but after Emmett read the book, followed Dr. Buttar's suggestions on food, I've lost 30 pounds in a couple of months. Thing is, it's not a diet, it's a change in lifestyle. Emmett has lost 50 plus. You know, Amy, I'm glad you said that because it has nothing to do with dieting. You know, that's really what it comes down to. So I want you to think about this for a second. What are the first three letters of the, of the word? Right? In, when you look at the word diet, what are the first three letters of diet? Right? D-I-E-T, D-I-E. D-I-E is die. So when you're dieting, it's a form of dying and the body is trying to survive. So when a person is obese, um, yes, there's lifestyle aspects, and yes, there's choices of food aspect, aspect um, and yes, there's a toxicity aspect. There's an emotional, there's always an emotional aspect to food. I mean, I'm prone to that myself. So there's all these different things that happen relating to food that leads to our obesity. So if one, if you can understand some of those components, two, you have better choices of foods, and you understand how your body's responding to the foods, and three, you start enacting certain basic principles. You never have to diet, okay? You never have to diet. You know, you can have your potato chips and you can have your pizza, but, you know, it's what are you going to, like, when, when you buy potato chips, one, if you can make them yourself, that's great. Or two, if you're going to go ahead and buy them, then look for the ingredients. Read the ingredients. If it has soy bean oil, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole, uh, pole ever. You know, if it has monosodium glutamate in it, if it has, there's certain things you just don't want to touch, okay? Um, for example, mayonnaise, okay? I love mayonnaise. But they use soybean oil in all the natural, organic, I don't care what it's called, every type of mayonnaise out there. I've only found one form of mayonnaise, one type, that doesn't use soybean oil, okay? Hellman's and Duke's and all these different mayonnaises have stuff in there that shouldn't be in there. And soybean oil is one of the worst things that you can put into your body. So reading the ingredients, understanding the basic aspects, and in, in fact, in the book, I don't even go into details like this. I give you two specific you know, criteria. If God made it, it's good. If man made it, it's madness. End of story. And when you eat something, look at it. Is it God-made uh, ingredients or is it man-made ingredients? So read the ingredients. And if it's more than two things in there, you don't know what they are or you don't understand or it's not, if not God-made, stay away from it. It's that simple. So, Amy, I appreciate you saying that about the book. It was designed to get the results, but you just got to follow the principles, okay? 
Emmett, by the way, kudos for 50 pounds, man. I don't want you to become anorexic and become a thin pole, you know, so that you won't even recognize it. So, uh, but no, great, great job. Azar says, that's true. It's keep, it's keep on happening. Um, I'm not sure, Azar, what, what that was uh, in reference to, so I'll just skip over that. Okay. Marva says, pans, heavy metals, mitochondria, methylation, OCD, gut issues, sensory autoimmune diseases. Where is the start point of autism? Mercury. Read the information. Read my congressional testimony. Watch the videos. It all starts with mercury. Yes, metals are a problem. Yes, persistent organic pollutants are a problem. Of course, the gut's an issue, but it's mercury. It's a spark that caused the fire. And everybody's trying to deal with the fire issues and talking about this is the fire and that's the fire. It's a spark. I don't care how many fires you put out. If you don't take care of that spark, it's going to reignite the fires. Mercury is the issue. We've treated over 3,700 children in my clinic over the last 20 some, 24 years, and all we did was take out the mercury, and these kids came back online. And depending how fast you can get them, you can get 100% recovery, depending if you can get them early enough. After the age of seven, it starts to decrease because the brain is less elastic. Okay? That's all it is, and over 35, actually, so there are 40,000 kids now, in some way, fashion, or form, have been treated using some form of our, uh, of our protocol through over 1,800 doctors now worldwide. Um, but it's mercury. That's the, that's the answer. You're welcome, Zara. Okay, so Zara says, does chelation work for MS patients? So the question is, uh, if chelation can be a treatment for an MS patient. If the MS patient is suffering from heavy metal toxicity, apps, the answer is yes. If the MS patient is not having heavy metal, then the answer is no. So we don't use a treatment to fix a pathology. We'll use a treatment to address an underlying physiological issue, in this case, heavy metals, if it's, if it's uh, chelation that we're doing. But that doesn't mean that, that chelation is going to fix MS. So I can have 10 patients with MS and three of them get better with chelation, but that's because they have a heavy metal issue. The other four, uh, the other, you know, about the seven, the other four may not have heavy, heavy metal toxicity, or they usually do, but they, then they may have other issues that are going on that we have to address. So again, it's not doing a treatment for a pathology. It's doing a treatment for an abnormality in the physiology, and if reverted and corrected and balanced, then you'll see the improvement in the, in the pathology. You'll see the pathology resolve, okay? Um, Stacy says, can certain kinds of makeup cause us to get toxic heavy metal levels? Wow, Stacy, that's a great question. And the answer is yes. And women typically wear makeup, men typically don't, but not just makeup. Um, it's also like some of the other things that women will do, like dyes in their hairs, hairspray. Guys, my ex-wife and I got in fights about this all the time, her spring hairspray. I was like, you know, if you want to do that, go outside. Um, you know, it, it's always, it's been a recurrent theme in my in my life, uh, the, the person that is my significant other now, same argument, you know, and, uh, and, and she's very intelligent. She, she knows this, and, you know, she's actually in the medical profession, and still it's, it's an argument. You know, it's just a little bit. I don't care how much it is. It just takes a little bit to start the process, right? So I would much rather my significant other had flat hair and there's no hairspray than have their hair looking this perfect with hairspray, okay? It's, that's just me. So, um, but makeup is another very big thing, and you need to be aware that certain makeups do have certain components in that look at the ingredients. Very good question. I can't answer that to the level that I would like to be able to because I really haven't studied the, the amount of heavy metals and, and which uh, 
types of makeups, but yes, they are in heavy, they are makeups that most makeups do have various types of components in there. So look for things that are advertised as um, just because it says organic doesn't mean that it may not have a toxic level of metals. Okay, organic is a term that's used very loosely. So look at the literature. Look at the makeup lines that talk about uh, sustainability and promoting health and all natural ingredients and inquire, okay? Um, I don't know whether certain laboratories will do analysis on makeup to see their levels of heavy metals, but it is something that I think should be, should be checked. And you, maybe, you can, maybe you can actually, uh, Stacy. Do a search on Google and see if you find anything about that and help us to, you know, educate us all about this. But the answer to your question, certain kinds of makeup cause us to get heavy metal toxic uh, exposure, and the answer is absolutely yes. I just don't know which ones would be worse than others, and I don't know um, which labs would be able to do the testing. But certainly finding a, a company that makes heavy, that makes um, makeup that's heavy metal free um, would be, would be, uh, and they are companies, I've seen companies advertise that, that would be what you'd want, but then also check it, make sure yourself, that's not just false marketing claims, okay, great question, oh, Anissa, okay, all right, Anissa, I, I, you might be, you might be actually talking with one of my uh, providers, I don't know, I think my, I don't know, maybe you are on my schedule, but um, I don't, I don't think so, but regardless, it doesn't matter if, if I'm needed for anything, you know, I come into the consultations, but you know, my providers, um, both of my providers, they're, they're very, very experienced and they've been with me for, for years. One of them has been with me for 18 years or 17 years. So, um, let's see, Fari says, thanks, Dr. Tor, we're dealing with periodic fever disorder. Could it be toxicity? Um, that's, that's a tough question. Periodic fever disorder. So, again, this is where the doctors don't understand what's going on, so they call it a periodic fever disorder. Um, I don't. I don't believe that there is such a thing. I believe that what's happening is it's a recurrent febrile response in response to something that's going on in the body. And so we need to do a workup and find out what it is. And could it be toxicity? The answer is absolutely yes. It very well could be, probably is. Whether it's heavy metal toxicity or persistent organic gluten or, or some type of opportunistic toxicity, which is probably what it is. You know, so it may be a low-grade subclinical type of issue going on. But again, this is what needs to be checked out, right? And you need to follow up with the provider and have somebody evaluate that that understands this aspect. Just to say, call it periodic fever disorder because whatever they check for doesn't show up, that's not sufficient. There is a response the body's having to something, and just because we can't see that something, we don't call it a periodic fever disorder. It's a febrile response in or to, to something. We just have to figure out what the heck it is, and we need to, you know, be judicious in our process of, of evaluating what it is. Okay, Marva says, and I'm actually going to, I've got the questions are just adding up. So if I don't get to your question today, please, uh, you know, save it and post it next time because I think this venue seems to work a lot better for me rather than looking up questions, and, and I think this works a lot better. So we've had some really good questions. There have been some questions I've answered very quickly because, again, I've ad, answered them ad nauseum before, like the one about, you know, all these different things. Where do we start with autism? Mercury, go to autismdefined.net. Autism, A-U-T-I-S-M, defined, D-E-F-I-N-I, D-E-F-I-N-E-D. And I'm showing my lack of spelling skills. Autism, defined, with a D at the end, dot net. Not dot com, dot net. 
Go to that website, and everything you've ever wanted to know about autism is there. Go through all the material there. There's 12 videos. There's all sorts of other information. And then if you actually subscribe, um, just, just opt in there, you get, um, get into another area which has a lot of uh, studies, uh, additional videos and other articles, and my congressional testimony with uh, a lot of detailed explanations, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, again, I just I don't think there's any better way for me to say that because I've said it so many times. Go to YouTube. There's so many things about mercury and autism. I explain all that there. So, all right. Um, so I'm going to answer Marva's question here, and then I'm going to switch to uh, to Instagram. Can Candida albicans that doesn't respond to medication can be related to heavy metals? Okay, so. This is how it works, Marva. A good question. So this is how the system works. You have heavy metal toxicity. You have persistent organic pollutants. That's a, that's the organophosphates, the toluenes, the benzenes, the fluorinated hydrocarbons, all the chemicals, the preservatives, the insecticides, the pesticides, all that stuff. That's under the POP, the persistent organic pollutants. If you have heavy metals on board or you have persistent organic pollutants on board, it's going to cause an immunosuppression. Okay, it's going to cause your immune system to come down. When you have an immunosuppression, you become susceptible to the third toxicity, which is the opportunistics. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the heavy metal toxicity, first toxicity, second toxicity, third toxicity, go to advancedmedicine.com, register there for free. You, you, you get in there and then go to on the left-hand tab, you'll see uh, facts on toxicity. Watch those videos. It explains everything. The seven toxicities, I talk about this on, this, on, on those videos. There's nine videos. They're all about nine, ten minutes long. It explains everything in there. Or you can, you know, if you've read it in my book, I've explained the seven toxicities there. The, basically... Candida is falls into that third toxicity component, the opportunistics. So if you have if you have a suppression of your immune system, the heavy metals, the persistent organic pollutants, you're going to have now susceptibility to that third toxicity, the opportunistics, which is yeast, Candida albicans, you know the funguses, all that stuff, bacteria, viruses, spirochetes, mycoplasma, yeast, uh, parasites, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's all explained. Go to facts on toxicity. Just all you do is go to advancedmedicine.com. Um, one of the one of the Moderators can help you. Uh, they'll give you an invitation code. You need an invitation code to get in there. Once you're in there, it doesn't cost anything. Go to your left-hand side. Look at the uh, tabs under education. You'll see the facts and toxicity videos. Watch them, and you'll understand. All right, so I'm going to stop right here at Marva's question, and I'm going to, because I've been on for 52 minutes, and I'm, let, me, let me answer some of the Instagram stuff, and then I'll come back, all right? All right, guys. Hello, everybody. Hi, Tiffany. How do vaccines increase cancer risk? Ah, great question. So vaccines have various types of what they call adjuvants that are designed to get a, a, a more, uh, elicit a greater reaction. These adjuvants are like formaldehyde, uh, nickel, um, aluminum, mercury, DNA adducts, all sorts of other things. These are all foreign materials that shouldn't be in the human body, right? And these substances contribute to what we call an, an immune burden, okay? They cause a immune response, and it basically alters the way our system is supposed to be functioning. And over time, as our body is now in this abnormal state of being introduced with all these different vaccines, all these different things that shouldn't be in the body under the pretense of supplementing the immune system or supporting the immune system by giving us our immune system memory, but now at the same time, these substances like mercury and aluminum and formaldehyde and all these other things, they're a nickel. They're all suppressing our immune response. So cancer is dependent upon a compromised immune system. So if you have a normal intact immune system, you cannot get cancer. 
But if you have cancer, that means that your immune system is no longer working. And the way that the, the vaccines, they add insult to injury, they cause damage to our immune systems, which then further causes a disruption in the body's ability to recognize that cancer is being formed. Because remember, cancer cells are constantly in everybody's body, but it's our normal immune response that sees and checks these, uh, these uh, abnormal cells and fixes them or, or gets rid of them. This is through the mechanism of apoptosis program cell death. But when, there's a, when, when the immune system becomes compromised because of all these things in our system that shouldn't be in there and, and is in a chronic state like that, then our immune system is no longer able to function correctly and optimally. And so now those abnormal cells that the, normally the immune system that would be functional intact would get rid of no longer recognizes those cancers, those cancer cells or the apoptotic mechanisms, the program cell death mechanisms go awry. So there's a suppression of apoptosis. So now you have uncontrolled cellular proliferation, which is what cancer essentially is. So it's, cancer is uncontrolled cellular proliferation and suppression of apoptosis is what it is on board a physiology that has a compromised immune system. That, that's all cancer is. So that was a, that was a great question. Um, hopefully that answered it. And maybe we'll, do a, maybe we'll do a webinar on that whole subject. Okay. okay uh, so the question is, should I avoid the shingles vaccine? So I don't tell people to avoid or not avoid anything. Okay. I can't tell you that because you're not my patient. You're not, you know, this is where practicing medicine um, over the internet, you know, people can say that's what I'm, okay, so if if somebody came to me to give me a vaccine for shingles, to me that would be assault, okay? I would defend myself or my children if anybody came with shingles shot. Look at the studies, you will see there's no validation for the shingles uh, shot. And in fact, most people that end up, they're people that have gotten, never had herpes zoster, never had shingles, they get the herpes shot, the, the herpes zoster shot, the, the shingles shot, and guess what? Next year they get the, the shingles. So, and that's very painful. So no, my, I wouldn't get it. That's me. You need to make a decision, informed decision by looking at the data, looking at the research, do your own research. But to me, if somebody came to me toward with a, with a syringe for a shingle shot, I would deck them. I'd hit them in the face and, you know, because that to me is assault. Hopefully that's clear. I did a blood test for metals and they were low. Still do stem cells. Checking blood levels for heavy metals is like looking for a mouse on your dinner plate, okay? You're not gonna see a mouse sitting on your dinner plate. I mean, if you do, that's pretty bad. But it's, you're not gonna find, a mouse is gonna be underneath the bed, it's gonna, it's, it doesn't work that way. Looking for heavy metals on blood, why even waste your time? There's no reason to do it. it, it you just wasted your money. It's gotta be done after a challenge test and you gotta, see what, what the yield is, okay? It, it just doesn't work that way, guys. I mean, go to YouTube. I've got video after video after video about this, how to do the heavy metal test the right way, and certainly not using blood. Okay, what do I do about constant hot flashes? I eat organic, dairy-free, gluten-free, and stay away from food sensitivities. Uh, there's a lot of things you can do about hot flashes. Um, if you join the IADFW, that would be a great question. In fact, for anybody on IADFW asking about the hot flashes, I'll give you, I'll give you the uh, the solution for that. Um, actually, for you guys, it's NDO4, and I'll just leave it at that. You guys probably know what I'm talking about, but uh, basically, it's a disruption of your hormonal cycle, and um, you know, first we deal with the gut issue, and and then we rebalance it, and NDO4 takes care of it. So, I've mostly healed my kids of their vaccine injuries. But my still, my but my son, excuse me, still flaps his hands and has some anxiety. Any suggestions? We're using 
GFCF diet and biomedical supplements. Okay, so this is a perfect example of a false sense of security. What did you do to deal with getting rid of the issue? Do you think that your child was born with a deficiency of biomedical supplementation and a GFCF diet issue? And if you do, then um, I wish you all the luck, but there's a reason that they have these issues. And going doing a, um, a GFCF uh, diet and give, giving, giving supplement issue, the underlying issue, the causation is mercury in this case, okay? So until that's done, you're not gonna have any, any resolution. Yeah, you don't feel good because you may not see the symptoms, but now that same child that you may not see the symptoms and now you see a little bit of hand flapping and a little bit of anxiety, which is again stemming because of the, the issue that's damage has been caused by the mercury, you know, sure, you, maybe they're talking, walking, doing all the normal things, but by the time they're 30, they're gonna have heart disease, they're gonna have cancer, okay? That's just how it works. Look at the incidence of cancer and heart disease now. It used to be people didn't have heart attacks until they were age 50. Now we're seeing people in their 30s having myocardial infarctions. Now we're seeing patients, I, I've, last, last year, two years ago, two years ago, I saw more cancer patients under the age of 30 than I've ever seen. And 25 to 30 is a, is a strongest, or 20 to 30, that's our strongest time of our life. And I saw more cancer patients between the age of 20 and 30 than I did any, any other age group. So it's, we're seeing more and more prevalence of this because of all the stuff that we're doing under the, the pretense of you know, public safety and doing these vaccines and all this stuff. So that, that's a false sense of security. You, you haven't done anything. You've, you've given them some supplements and helped them to deal with some of that issue, but the causation factor has not been addressed. Do you believe in a cure for cancer, HIV, or HSV? Well, we have patients from 91 countries. I mean, just last month, we did a total, uh, we did a count. We have 14 patients that are 15 years or more out from their stage four cancer that were told that they were terminal, that they, had, that they were going to die. 14. So now you tell me, is there a cure for cancer? Is it, I mean, I, I'm not even sure how to answer that question. That's, that's not a question for, for me to answer. It's a question for, do you believe it? Okay, if you don't believe there's a cure for cancer, then you, God forbid, have cancer. Gosh, guess what? You're not going to get a cure for cancer, okay? So cure is a, is a legal term. If you, have, if you say you cure cancer, and anybody says cure cancer, unless it's five years or more, they say it's no cure. Okay, that's why they talk about remission, remission. And all these people that have gotten chemotherapy and then they're alive and they think that they've dealt with the cancer and now they're cancer-free and then four years later they die of cardiomyopathy because of all the chemo damage or the radiation damage done to their heart. Okay, so, you know, this, these are political terms you're talking about. Go to Medical Rewind, and you can see the number of patients. You can see some of the patients that have been told that they weren't going to be, they, they didn't have any more. Um, they, they, had, they were referred to hospice, and, and then they came to our treatment program, and how many years ago that was. Okay, so that's, again, a question that you can, you can answer yourself. I'm not going to uh, answer that. That's, that's a political. Okay, somebody, uh, Catherine says, what, DMPS, what is that? DMPS is a propanosulfonate. It's a chemical. Uh, it's a synthetic amino acid that's designed specifically to bind to um, certain metals like mercury and arsenic and plutonium and uranium. Uh, Sham says, hi, Dr. Tar, I just wanted to ask, do you specialize in cancer patients or just autism? I specialize in, okay, so we have patients with autism and with cancer and with heart disease. Um, we, we deal with patients with all sorts of different medical problems, but I would say 85 to 90% of our practice is autism and cancer, and um, probably 10% is heart disease, and then the rest is you know other 
difficult to diagnose people that didn't um, people that have gone to many doctors and haven't gotten a solution so we've had uh, a couple of years back we actually did a survey over a six-month period of people that were coming to us and I think the average person that came out the average person had seen 26 doctors before they came to to us but uh, you know we've had people that have seen over 50 60 70 doctors before and then we've got people that have only you know we're the first doctor they saw for the issue because they didn't want to go anywhere else so the point being again we, we don't deal with just cancer or autism we deal with difficult to diagnose but basically it's optimizing the body and so I have patients that are preventive, but the vast majority of what we see is cancer and autism only because those are the two things that are considered, you know, by standard medicine to be incurable. And um, they, they, we've had great success with that. So I guess it just, um, Instagram just closed down because I guess it only goes for an hour. So I wasn't able to answer all the questions there. And I am going to... Try to answer. Uh, let's go another five or ten minutes here, okay? And I'm going to make these a lot shorter. So my autistic son, Jessica says, my autistic son had only three to four chelation treatments at your office. He's his autism is moderate severe. He's now displaying horrible self-injurious behavior. I've been told it may be because we only did a couple, and he likely needed a lot more. Well, I mean, this is like saying I worked out three or four times, and I'm I'm not sure why I'm not getting in better shape. Uh, all that's going to do is make you sore. It's going to you know, make your muscles, uh, you're going to be in pain because you've never used those muscles. Like, you know, how do I say this in a gentle way that it, it doesn't come across harsh? Whenever you do something, think, think, of, think of driving down the highway, okay? You're on a two-lane road. You come up behind an 18-wheeler. There's oncoming traffic. If you're going to pass that 18-wheeler, when you pass it, you hit the gas and you get the hell around that vehicle. Or you stay behind the 18-wheeler and you stay there. But you have to have commitment when you pass an 18-wheeler. If you don't, you're going to kill yourself or you're going to kill somebody else. Similarly here, if you're going to do something, do it. If you're not going to do it, don't do it. But to do three or four treatments, it's literally like working out three or four times and thinking that you're going to get healthy now. It doesn't work that way. I mean... I don't even think I should have to explain that because it doesn't, the system doesn't work that way. I tell my kids, and I've told, like when we were in the military, you know, one of my slogans with my soldiers was, and I do this with my, my kids all the time, go hard or go home. If you don't want to go hard, if you're not 100, willing to engage in 110%, don't do it. I don't want you to waste your time and effort and money coming. In fact, I don't want you to waste my time because it's not going to get anywhere. Okay? So... That's going to be our theme. Go hard or go home. Um, hopefully, Jessica, that wasn't too harsh, but the point is that you can't expect a result. Um, all we did was we stirred up everything. We stirred up the pot. You went into, into that bucket of water with sand at the bottom, and we said, okay, let's start scooping up that sand. Well, it takes, I don't know how many times it's going to take to scoop up that sand, but it's going to take a lot more than three or four times. But if you do it three or four times and you stop, you just all you did was agitate that water, and it's all cloudy now. Okay, it's all got that sediment that we're trying to scoop out, murking up in the water. And, of course, he's going to end up having all this stuff because we just steered up the pot. You know, we, it's a process that starts, and, and the process needs to continue. And if you don't continue it, all you did was you muddied the waters. That's all you did. Carolyn said, thank you. I'm not sure, Carolyn, what you're saying thank you for, but you're welcome. Uh, Karen says, tell me your thoughts on... Mycoplasma bacteria. My cat was tested positive for it, was on antibiotics for a month, and still coughs sneezes. She got better for a while, but it came back again. 
Karen, I'm not a vet, but mycoplasma is a very persistent type of a pathogen, um, as are spirochetes, and most likely that has not been resolved, and that's the reason. More importantly, you need to be careful because you could get it. Heather says, my niece is anaphylactic to dairy eggs and also has celiac disease, only had the vitamin K vaccine at birth. Would you start, would you, how would you start helping her heavy metals? Uh, well, you know, Heather, the question that you're asking me, I, we have a detailed process that a patient goes through. And that process, they have to go through an intake form, we do a physical on them, we get their history, and then we determine what, the, it, we do some testing and then we determine what the issue is. For you to ask me that question, you know, I, how, how would you start helping her heavy metals? No, I would, I would evaluate her first to decide what the possibilities are and then make a decision on what to do. So, um, yeah, it, again, you know, what I may end up doing is, and it's not to be rude, but a question like that, it's, it, it, I, I don't even know where to start. That, that's, that's why you go, you have 100 different doctors, they're going to have 100 different ways of evaluating a person to decide what to do. So we have a very specific way. It's a very successful way. It's attracted people from you know over 90 countries now. But no, we don't just start checking heavy metals because that would be that would be foolish. We gotta you know we gotta evaluate the patient and see what's going on with the patient, what the symptoms are, what the problems are, do the diagnostic testing, and then evaluate based upon that. If she shows heavy metal propensity for heavy metal issues, or she has a history of heavy metal exposure, or she has other parameters that we um, can determine through the head map. Yes, then we would do heavy metals but that's not where we would necessarily start. She may end up having another issue. She may not have any issue with heavy metals, and, and if she doesn't have any vaccine history, or mother doesn't have any vaccine history, then of course we're not gonna start there. We're gonna look at our gut. We're gonna look at liver function. We're gonna look at what other abnormalities exist before we start just jumping in. And a lot of this has to do with the patient's history to what the symptom is that they're coming in with. And you know, based upon 28 years of clinical practice, uh, you know, certain times when people come in with certain types of things, I already know what the issue is. Somebody comes in with hormonal issue, where am I gonna start? Gut, right away, okay? Somebody comes in with an upper back pain. Uh, they've already seen chiropractors. I know it's not musculoskeletal. It's probably going to be a, a gallbladder a digestion type issue, and, and I'm going to start with the gut. So, again, you know, I'm not here to explain to you how I practice medicine. I'm here to answer a general questions. So that question um, is, is more a practice. How do you practice medicine question? Uh, Anisha says, does vitamin K vaccine at birth contain any metals? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, vitamin K vaccine at birth does not contain any metals, but that can change, and I don't know. When my son was born, when my youngest son was born, it didn't. But again, we've now since found that there are many vaccines that are labeled and many uh, injections that are labeled as thimerosal-free, but they still contain thimerosal, and that's what Congressman Dan Burton asked for criminal sanctions to be brought against the FDA and the FTC in 2004 because they did uh, analysis on four different batches of four different types of vaccines that were all labeled thimerosal-free, and on analysis, they showed that they did have thimerosal, and there's a video on YouTube about that, basically, in fact, if you go to autismdefined.net, there's a video there, and one of those videos that goes into those details. Um, the, the reason was that the drug manufacturers stopped adding thimerosal to the vial of vaccines. They now use the thimerosal during the, back, during the production phase, so they don't add it to the vial, so by law, they don't have to disclose that. They can say it's thimerosal-free because they didn't add it, because it's been used in the production component and not added in as an ingredient. They don't have to divulge it. So be careful. I, I would, you know, if I had a child that was born now, I would not let them get a vitamin K injection. I would just make sure that we supplement with vitamin K. Um, but I, I, I just don't trust the system anymore. Amy said, yes, look up all ingredients to hide things. Absolutely. 
Shamsa says, hi, Dr. Tony, specialize in cancer patients or just autism? Uh, Shamsa, we see a lot of cancer patients from all over the world. Zara says, almost all makeup has metal, lead, and other toxins. Yes, Zara, I, I agree with you. I just There are some that are that are free, but I would still test them and or tap them checked. Uh, Amber says, my son recovering from vaccine injury, but occasionally still flaps. Was hoping to get your thoughts. He, he, he isn't he isn't recovered. That's that's showing a sensory input deficit. Okay, so if somebody's flapping their hands, they're tiptoe walking. That's a sensory input deficit. They still have a mercury issue. Um, that's nothing's been resolved unless you've removed the heavy metals and it's taken at least a year, year and a half. You haven't resolved anything. You may be seeing less symptom symptoms of it, so you may think that you're resolving it, but unless you've dealt with the heavy metal issue, you haven't resolved anything. Environmental working group evaluates cosmetics. Envi Carolyn says uh, environmental working group evaluates cosmetics. Environmental working group is an awesome organization, um, and if they're putting out information on certain type of cosmetics, you can bet your bottom dollar they're good to go. They are very, very good, very reputable organization. Thank you for that, Carolyn. I did not know that Environmental Working Group was uh, evaluating cosmetics. All right, so we're almost at an hour and 15 minutes, so this is going to be the last question that I'm going to answer, and then uh, I know we've got 42 more questions, but I'm already been going for an hour and 15 minutes, and i am still got to do the IEDFW. So if you're an IEDFW member, guys, do me a favor. If you're an IEDFW member, if you want to ask a question at the beginning, but let's save your questions for the, for the IEDFW session, um, or... You can ask them here, but if I don't address them, then ask them again at the IEDFW session, and I'll go into more details. So uh, I, I, hate, I hate leaving any questions unanswered, but um, but I, we do have to do the IEDFW broadcast. So Amber says uh, he's got an advanced vocabulary, and he's no longer self-harmed, and his OCD behaviors are drastically better, but seems to still have anxiety and flaps his hands. Again, Amber, you haven't addressed the issue. So go to autismdefined.net, watch those videos, and you will understand what's going on. There's 12 videos. They range from 5 minutes to 15 minutes. And again, the issue is the same. Anybody can ask me this a thousand times. The answer is the same. I don't care what he's doing. I don't care what the history is. If they have sensory input deficit and they had a developmental delay, no matter what you did, if you haven't addressed metals, you're not going to get full resolution. The children that we have, go to, go to the YouTube channel and just see that video that says, who's Dr. Buttar? You'll see two cancer patients and two autism patients, and you'll see where they were and you see them today. That's the difference. You know, when people tell me they've, they've recovered their child, but they're still flapping their hands, that's not a recovery. <laughs> All you've done is you've, you've allowed the normal uh, adaptation process to take place. If they've got a sensory input deficit, they're still, they're still toxic. You know, that. There's no way to remove heavy metals that I know of unless you go through that process of heavy metal removal. The oral stuff, it's, it's a false sense of security. It's not chelating anything. It's binding to certain metals because of the natural, natural um, uh, affinity that the, like cilantro, for example. I love cilantro, but cilantro is a natural concentrator. It's not really binding. It's concentrating it. But if you look at the cilantro supplementation you, and you send it off to a lab, you'll see that the cilantro naturally already has a high level of uh, mercury, unless it was grown hydroponically, it's going to have that, okay? People talk about zeolites, this, that, the other. Well, guys, if it's working for you, great. Show me one recovered child with on autism that worked on zeolite, okay? Because then I can give up my practice and I don't have to treat children with the DMPS and go through all the trials and tribulations to do. Hey, put them all on zeolite. 
obviously it doesn't work because you know we've had tons and tons of kids that have come to us with zeolites and that's not that's not the answer yes does zeolite bind to mercury that's in the gut of course it does but that's not what the problem is you're talking about mercury that's already intimately woven into the fabric of the proteins and, and bound to the terminal end of the proteins that we can chelate, that we can bind to, but also to the sulfhydro groups that are internal to the protein structure that are helping to morphologically keep that structure intact. So those are internal sulfhydro bonds. You can't get to it with a chelator, but you could with something like British analucite, but then you've got a 20% mortality rate. You know, one out of five people that you treat is an awesome chelator for mercury, but you're going to cause protein denaturing and one out of five people will die from it. So, you know, my point is that this is until you've removed the heavy metals you haven't done anything you, you you can do many things but these oral components they bind to the components this is all marketing hype this is all companies that are trying to sell you stuff trying to get you to think that you've got you know you're going to solve your child's problem well if, if it did solve the problem then you guys wouldn't be here asking me these questions and and the reason I get kind of frustrated with this is because I have if I've been asked this question once, I've been asked this question, no exaggeration, 10,000 times. I go to a conference, I give a lecture, I'm asked this question over and over and over again by every parent that comes up thinking that because they're asking the question, it's going to be a different answer. It's the same answer. Okay, there's, there's a thing in medicine we say always and never are never true. There's an exception, and that's autism. It is always a mercury issue, always. Because even the ones that I've doubted three years into treatment haven't seen mercury, and then boom, all of a sudden mercury is a sky high, you know, like 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 the highest levels I've ever tested in a human being high. So, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I've treated this kid for so many years, and yeah, the kid's no longer running into traffic and no more no more gouging of his own eyes, but you know, and he's only saying mama and three or four other words, but he's still so um, so damaged. And then all of a sudden, you see the metal levels just skyrocketing out. In fact, there's a video that I did about a child named Rishibon, and I believe it's on YouTube. Um, you got, if it's not on there yet, it will be soon. Um, but that, it's a great clinical example of, of a child that we treated. And even, even I started second-guessing myself, maybe it wasn't mercury. And then when we saw the mercury levels, it went from non-detectable limits to three years later. Uh, 80, it was a 40, 43 or 34 micrograms per gram creatinine, over 12 times the safe level of normal. And we thought there's no way this can be real. And lead level was like in the 80s. No way this could be real. So I thought it was a lab error. I repeated the test. And then mercury came back at 89 micrograms per gram creatinine. And lead was over 240 micrograms per gram creatinine. And the baseline testing, which, we, you know, I can show you this, these tests. In fact, on the video, we show the test. The baseline video didn't show anything. It was like there was, the kid had no metals, you know, like nothing. That's a non-excreter. All right. So, guys, um, I said I was going to go to an hour and 15 minutes. So we were almost at an hour and 20 um, guys, I'm sorry that if I didn't ask answer your questions, uh, please tune in next week and we'll try to answer them. Or if you're IEDFW, to save your questions for the next session. Um, for those of you that are not uh, IEDFW members and you want to become members, basically uh, look, go to advancedmedicine.com, register there, ask any of the moderators there. They can give you an invitation code. And then you can watch the, the video on the Map to Get Ahead program. Uh, look to the left-hand side. The IADFW stands for the International Association for a Disease-Free World. It's $99 a year normally, and uh, right now, if you if you join, it's $99 for a lifetime membership, and then you get access to a bunch of different things, including a lot of videos and DVDs and books. And then you also get the Map to Get Ahead program, that is about $2,500 value, which you get free if you join the the um, IADFW. It's a promotional thing that we're doing now. 
And in fact, that's the only way. Everybody gets a map to get ahead program now. Some of you guys bought that program, but you were IEDFW members originally from, from the beginning. And now, in order to make sure that the community is all the same, everyone that becomes an IEDFW member automatically gets a map to get ahead program. But you guys didn't pay for the IEDFW membership, or you, you had a minimal charge. So that's one reason we've now taken the membership to the normal $99 per year. But for right now, for a limited time, I think some of you guys may have been on here last week when somebody was asking about the promotion from before, but that was a year and a half ago. Uh, so don't miss out. Join the IED. You can get to Advanced Medicine. That's free access. Lots of information. You get access to the Head Map tool. You get access to many different things. We're adding information all the time. A lot of different webinars you can watch there. Um, but then if you join the IEDFW, which is on the far right, then you get certain uh, additional privileges and you have access to certain tools and certain components that normal uh, registered people at Advanced Medicine don't have. And then you get coming to the fold and then you have access to the live streams and some of these other things that we do. So that's my plug for the IEDFW. If any of you have questions about that, talk to some of the moderators that are actually on here, uh, Tiffany or um, uh, Amy or Andrea. I don't know who all is on here that can help you, but there's a lot of people here that can help you. So, guys, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you guys being on here. And uh, you, you don't recognize and realize, but for me to do this, you know, I've been thanked a lot. For me to do this every week, it's really invigorating for me. It's like my plug-in because I get energy from you guys. And so I appreciate you for that. And I hope that you can pass it forward and, and pay it forward and help other people. Um, invite people to the Facebook thing once every week we do it from about 8.15 onwards to for about an hour, hour and a half, and then we go and do the IEDFW live broadcast. So we'll see you next week between 8 and 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time, and uh, I look forward to seeing you guys then. All right, talk to you guys soon. And for the IEDFW members, give me about five minutes. I'm just going to rehydrate, and I'll be back on. Good night, guys. Thank you for tuning in with us today. For more information and links on other valuable resources, please visit advancedmedicine.com and medicalrewind.com. Also be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, The How Report. And join Dr. Rasha Patar for his Facebook Live broadcast every Monday evening and for hundreds of hours of Advanced Medicine podcasts, which are broadcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and are available in the podcast section of medicalrewind.com. You can find Dr. Buttar on Facebook by searching for Dr. Rashid A. Buttar and on Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram by using Dr. Buttar. Don't forget to head over to advancedmedicine.com and register for your free account, gain access to the HeadMap assessment, and many other free resources available at advancedmedicine.com. Use Dr. Buttar's invitation code 11 and join today. Thank you for your support and for being a part of making the change the world is waiting for.